says, you know, God, I know what I want to do, but I trust that what you say is best. And so even if what you want and what scripture says are at odds, there's a way that says, I'm going to follow what God says. And I promise you that second path is the way to be truly happy in this life. The path of trust and obedience, especially in an area like marriage and sex and family and divorce, is the way to be happy. All right, so here we go. We're going to walk through this passage and hear what Jesus has to say. And first, look with me in verse 4, and you'll see that right off the bat, Jesus is going to tell us something on gender. Verse 4 there, he said, From the beginning, God had made the male and female. Now, he's alluding to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Scripture unapologetically declares that there are two genders, male and female, and that those genders coincide irrevocably with the biological gender God assigns to each person at birth. Now, we must acknowledge that there are those who really do struggle with not feeling like they fit within their bodies. That is a real struggle to be biologically male but not feel like a man. To be biologically female but not feel like a woman. That is a real struggle. But God's word says you were not made an accident. You were made either man or woman. And these things are different. Men and women are of equal value in God's eyes, praise the Lord, and there is a unique quality assigned by our Creator to being a man and to being a woman. And so, from the beginning, we have to acknowledge that there are only two genders and that these coincide with your biological gender assigned to you by God from birth. Next, on marriage. Look with me in verse 5. Jesus says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And then he goes down in verse 6 and says, What God has joined together. He's quoting now from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here's God's definition of marriage. It builds on there being two genders. Marriage, God says, is a commitment between one man and one woman before God to love one another for life. I'll give it to you again. Marriage is a commitment between one man and one woman before God to love one another for life. Now, there are many who struggle with things like same-sex attraction. And that is a real struggle that the church needs to meet with both grace and truth. We nonetheless must affirm that marriage is defined by God, not by us. It can only be one man and one woman and those genders defined biologically from birth for life. That's what marriage is. We must show grace to those who feel differently. And if you want to show love to someone who feels differently, know that it is never a loving thing to imply going against God is somehow good. 
So you love them by walking with them patiently, by not saying, you are so messed up, I couldn't even talk to you. That is not the way a Christian loves someone in a struggle. But you cannot love them by encouraging them in what the Bible says is wrong. So to this end, for instance, I would caution Christians away from participating in or attending any marriage ceremony that is not a marriage by God's definition. You have friends. It's a man and a man, and they want you to come to their marriage ceremony. Find a way to, con- to tell them you love them, and because you love them, you cannot attend that ceremony because to do so would be to imply that what they're doing is an actual marriage. How about on sex? Look at verse 5. There, Jesus said that the two shall become one flesh. We've talked about gender. We've talked about marriage. Now we're talking about sex. I told you, Jesus is hitting all the controversial topics in one message. We know from Genesis 2 and from Genesis 4 that when Jesus says one flesh, he's talking about the union between a husband and a wife. And that that intimate relationship is beautiful and it includes God's beautiful gift of sex. God created sex. For some of you, you may have gone years to church and never heard a pastor say sex from the pulpit. Well, guess what? You're going to hear me say the word sex, and in just a little bit, Jesus is going to use the word eunuch like four times. So that's where we're going today. Uh, Kids, if you don't know what a eunuch is, ask your dad. Sorry, dads. Yeah, I'll put you on the uh, spot for that one. Moms, you get a break today. In my family, this is how it always worked. The questions about things like that come up when I'm off at drill or something else, and Megan gets stuck answering that. So kids, I'll tell you what a eunuch is later. All right, so one flesh union implies the beautiful gift of sex. Because God created marriage and God created sex, he is the one who gets to tell us when and where sex is allowed. Now, if you've been in the church for any time, that seems like so basic. Why would a pastor need to say that? Here's the reason. Because in our day and age, we think that we get to define when we get to have sex. But that's not how it works. We think that we are the masters of our own pleasure. It's my body. I can do what I want. But from the very beginning... God said that the only good and right place for sexual expression is within a biblical marriage. And a biblical marriage is one man and one woman committed to one another for life. And that man and woman are defined man and woman by birth from God. So, the only place for sex to be good and right and a blessing according to God is after a man and a woman have committed to one another in marriage. That's it. And that's the path to joy. How about on divorce? Look at me at verse 6 again. There, just this small phrase, Jesus said, let not man separate. So all of this builds the idea where Jesus is answering their question. He says, basically, divorce should not occur. God's design is one man and one woman for life. When any marriage dissolves, it's against God's design. The Pharisees 
jump on their opportunity. It's like they've been waiting for this. Hey, hey Jesus, but, but what about Moses who said in Deuteronomy 24 that if they want to get a divorce, they just got to be sure to give the wife a nice certificate of divorce. Doesn't that mean that we can get a divorce? Well, Jesus, it's not like he has forgotten about Deuteronomy 24. It's not like he was stumped by the Pharisees. What's going on there is God does hate divorce because marriage is supposed to be a picture of God's faithful love for his people. When a man commits to love his wife faithfully, when a woman commits to love her husband faithfully, that faithful love over years and years is supposed to be like, like a play, and I mean a drama, where we get a glimpse of faithful love. And it reminds us of how much God faithfully loves us. But there are times in this sinful world where a marriage will come to an end. And Jesus says, yes, yes, sometimes marriages will end, but there are basically two reasons given in the Bible for when a marriage can actually end on God's terms. And they're both sad. One is when there has been sexual immorality committed. That's what Jesus said in verse 9. He says, except for sexual immorality. Now another, Paul, the apostle, will bring up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you want to see it, it's in verse 15. It says there, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So two reasons given that a marriage may end biblically. One, adultery, and two, abandonment. When there is a Christian, let's say, woman married to a Christian or a, a man who maybe at one point he claimed to be Christian, but he's gotten to a point in his life where he doesn't claim that at all. And, and he really wants to be done, and he files for divorce, the Bible does allow that woman to, to let the divorce occur, to, to let him separate. What this means is there are a lot of unbiblical reasons for divorce, and they're quite common. So for instance, we are no longer in love. I've heard that. That's a reason to get counseling. That's not a reason for divorce. We fight all the time. I've heard that. That's a reason to get help. It's not a reason for divorce. We're just roommates. I've heard that. It's a reason to get some help. That's not a reason for divorce. I feel nothing for them. I understand. But you made a commitment to God. It's a reason to get some help. That's not a reason for divorce. Divorce should always be the last resort. In other words, if you are married and you are unhappy in your marriage, you shouldn't be just sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for your spouse to do something that gives you the biblical reason that you can finally divorce them, right? Um, we, we, we are such uh, people that, right, we can get ourselves to the position where it's like, oh, I wish she would just go ahead and, and, and reach out to that other fella because then I could get rid of her. Then I could say I could finally divorce that woman I just don't feel anything for. No, 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 that's not, not how it works. 
Divorce should always be the last resort after all opportunities to love and reconcile have been exhausted. Now, this morning, I know, and this is how it works, right? Everybody in here, whether it's you personally or someone you know has been affected by divorce. There was a day and age where, you know, if you brought up divorce, only 10% of people would be affected. But I'm not going to make anybody raise hands, but I promise everybody in this room, including me, knows someone they care about who has gone through a divorce. And you've seen what it does to a family. Even if it became the, the only option left, divorce hurts. And there you see why God hates divorce. So what I have to say is this. If you have gone through a divorce, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Praise God, the same Savior who died on this cross, His blood can cover those who've been divorced. You can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. You are loved by God. It does not somehow place you beyond the love of the Savior if you have gone through a divorce on unbiblical grounds. And the same Savior who loved you and died you says, look, if you've gone through an unbiblical divorce, you need to trust your Savior enough and not get married again. Now, this is hard. But if you've gone through an unbiblical divorce, that means you initiated a divorce for one of those reasons I said, other than sexual immorality or abandonment, the Bible says you're not supposed to get married again. Well, pastor, I'm on my third marriage. What do I do? If you were divorced for unbiblical grounds and you're already remarried, the answer is not to tack on another divorce to try to solve the problem. Okay? The answer is never, well, let me try to obey God by disobeying God. No, at that point, you need to love your spouse the way Jesus loves you while confessing that earlier the divorces were unbiblical. This is an area that while Jesus touches on these topics very quickly, I would encourage you, if, if you have been through a divorce and you've never talked about this with a pastor, please feel free to reach out. I would be happy to sit with you and walk through these things. Um, if you are in a marriage and you're struggling, please reach out. That is not a sign of weakness to say, hey, my marriage needs some help. I think we need to talk through this. Um, Praise God, that is bravery to reach out and ask for some help. Now, there's some of you that thought you were off the hook this morning because you're like, well, I'm not married. I've not been through a divorce. Jesus talks about singleness next. Uh, so um, those of you who are single, you're ready. Here's what he says in verse 12. He says that there are some eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Right? We've talked about gender. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about sex. We've talked about divorce. What about singles? What about those who say want to be married but are not yet married? Does the Bible have anything to say to them? Yes, it does. And first off, I understand the, the painful position, but you've got to recognize that um, your time BM is, is not the worst time of your life. What I mean is before marriage. Uh, your time before marriage does not mean that God has forgotten you. When Jesus says that there are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, again, 
kids, ask your dad. Uh, but he's not talking about some kind of uh, physical violence done to yourself. He's saying that you can use your singleness for amazing kingdom purposes, for whatever time it is. In addition to men in the Bible like Jesus and Paul, I had an interesting time this week doing some research into some of the greatest missionaries in church history who were called to a single life. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was a missionary to China and really a pioneer for women being involved in missions. She applied several times to go as a missionary from uh, the, the Baptists. And time and again, she was denied on the basis that she was a woman and it was way too dangerous in China to go on mission. So she raised her own funds and went as a missionary to China and even had to turn down a marriage proposal to live on mission. And today, when we give money as the Southern Baptist Convention to seeing the gospel taken to the ends of the world, the fund that we give to is called the Lottie Moon Easter Offering in her honor. Mary Slesser, she was a missionary to Nigeria. She turned down marriage when it was clear that her husband didn't want, or her, her would-be husband would not have wanted her to live in such a dangerous place. And she said, look, God has called me to this people, and so I cannot marry you. And she stayed faithful and remained single so that she could love the people of Nigeria. Gladys Allward was a missionary to China. She cared for many children and was used to help end a, a bizarre practice of foot binding in China. And she remained single all her life. Modern day Bruce Olson, if you've never read his biography, it's a book called Bruchko because that's what the Molotone call him in Colombia. He's still alive. He has remained single, dedicating his life to reaching a people group in Colombia. He's been there over 50 years to this point. At least to my knowledge, he has remained single. The point is, whether for a short time or a long time, don't waste your single life. You have some opportunities that become more difficult when married with children that may not ever surface again. And so uh, I will also share this to those of you who are single looking for a spouse. The greatest advice I ever got on this. You want to know how you find the right person to marry? You run as hard as you can after Jesus Christ. And then you look left and right and see if someone's keeping pace with you. And that's a great way to find a spouse. Worked for me, at least. We've talked about gender. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about sex. We've talked about divorce. We've talked about singleness. Now, in verse 14, we're going to talk about children. At the end of the discussion on singleness, it could be concluded, well, I guess Jesus doesn't want us to get married because he just said that being single is better than being married. And, and yeah, that would be a little bit of a misunderstanding. Jesus says that there are some who are called to singleness, but not everybody. In fact, I think it is intentional that the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to include this story of the children coming to Jesus right after this. It's as if to say, now wait a minute. God loves 
marriage, family, and children. They are absolutely gifts from God. So did you hear what happened there? I love these disciples. I heard one pastor saying they, they just stick their foot in their mouths over and over and over again. You imagine the, the, the group of people come to bring their kids to Jesus so that Jesus will lay his hands on them and bless them. And the disciples are going, whoa, 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 whoa. Where do you think you're going, kids? Stop, 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 stop. And they hear something. Oh, wait, what's that, Jesus? Oh, okay, right. It's as I was saying, come on, kids, come on. You come right to Jesus. That's what I was telling you, right? They, they just have to do a complete about phase because Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is doing several things here. First, he's making clear, children, you can become Christians. How does a child become a Christian? The same way an adult does, by understanding you are a sinner and you need Jesus alone to forgive you. By turning from your sin and trusting Jesus that his death on the cross, his resurrection is how you're forgiven. That's how a child becomes a Christian. How do I know if it's real? Well, if a child really does express that sorrow for sin and a desire for Jesus only, don't prevent them from coming to Jesus. I think Jesus is also connecting some dots here. I think he's saying that children are the desired outcome of a godly marriage so that the next generation can be raised to know and walk with God. God raised up a prophet named Malachi to wrap up the Old Testament and Malachi was used to preach to the Israelites and call them, especially the priests, to stop rampant divorce. And if we could ask Malachi, well, well, why was that such a big deal that they stopped divorcing their wives? Malachi would say this, did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The fruit of a godly marriage is godly children. The blessing that a godly marriage can give the next generation is children raised with time and again, day in, day out, hearing the word of God in the context of a family that loves them. That's why at Redemption Church we are seeking to have a children's ministry that is not the kind of ministry that says, hey parents, come on, just drop your kids off, give us a few years with them, we'll spit them out as great little kingdom citizens. That is not how it works. At Redemption Church, the idea is we will come alongside you as parents to help you, to encourage you, to support you as you embrace the role that God has for you, and that is to be the primary discipler of your children. Is it hard? You bet. Moms, dads, there is no greater joy or responsibility hardly under heaven than raising a child in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And that's why you need a church to come alongside you and love you and help you and support you. All children should be cherished and pointed to Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I've got a few questions because some of you have children, some of you have grandchildren, some of you, I, I met one this morning, have great-grandchildren. Praise the Lord. Well, imagine right now 
This week, a friend comes to you and says, hey, I, I got to share with you, um, I, I'm pregnant and I don't know what to do. Would you help me take care of that? What are you going to say? How are you going to love that person? They expect you to say, well, you're my friend. Of course I'll help you with that. But they want you to take them to get an abortion. Are you going to love them enough to try to talk them into going to a place like the nest where they can get someone who will give them another option, maybe adoption instead of abortion? Or are you going to mind your own business? If a baby starts crying in this service, be honest. Would you thank God for those little lungs? Or would you kind of squirm and be like, I wish they'd take that baby outside. If a group of kids is running in the hallway and you kind of have to do that thing of getting to the side as they all go past, and then a pastor gets up like Pastor Jeff and says, hey, we could use some volunteers in the kids' ministry. Are you thinking, Lord Jesus, you better send somebody else? Or are you thinking, you know, maybe I could. Maybe I could be part of that, of loving and come alongside families that way. If God opens the doors and we end up having a number of kids from Hind Grove Early Learning Center come into this church, are you going to be praising Jesus or are you going to be hanging your head thinking, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Children should be cherished. And I'm praying that God brings a whole pile of kids here for us to love and some families to boot. But that's going to take all of us. And yep, there are times that loving the kids will mean, hey, no, 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 we don't do that. That's not, that's not what we do. Yep, absolutely. But would you ask God to give you the same heart Jesus had for the kids? He loved them little children and he prayed for them. And I'm asking God to give us that same heart. I want to tell you a story. We're going to change the names of the people in this story. I'm going to call them Barry and Jen. Barry came to me one morning for breakfast, and it didn't take long for me to pick up that something bad had been going on. So Barry just came out with it. He said he had caught Jen sending romantic texts to a, a, a different man that he knew at work, or that she knew at work, rather, and he just knew that the marriage was heading for divorce, and his friends had been giving him the advice that it was time to lawyer up. And so he wanted to know what, what I thought about that. And I listened to him, and, and uh, it kind of hit me in the gut when I heard it. And I told him not what he wanted to hear, that it was not time to lawyer up, that it was time to pray for his wife and to be Jesus for her, to, to love her the way that Jesus had loved Barry. He didn't want to hear that. He, he was a little upset with me. I remember uh, that breakfast that time, but... As he had a few days to process it, he agreed not to get a lawyer and, and file for divorce. He started praying every day for his wife. And she got a lawyer and they did some mediation with the lawyer. And, and even before the divorce would be finalized, they set up a time for joint custody because there were two kids involved. And, and Barry kept praying for his wife. And the time came for the first weekend where uh, the kids were going to go to be with Barry. And so he had the kids and he kept praying for his wife. And uh, Jen had that first weekend where she didn't have the kids and got a, a little preview of what 
life was going to be like after the divorce. And she didn't like it. And uh, Barry kept praying for his wife. And as, as the days turned into weeks, they've, they've been separated for a while now, uh, Jen came to realize that guy that, you know, she thought would want to have a long-term relationship with her. Now, he, he's just kind of using her for what, what he could get. Barry kept praying for his wife. And then something incredible happened. Jen came to church one night, and the Holy Spirit had been moving, and she gave her life to Christ. And Barry kept praying for his wife. And then something incredible happened. She decided that she wanted to get counseling to fight for their marriage. And Barry kept praying for his wife. And then she stood up in front of the whole church and talked about how she should not have done that and asked for forgiveness in the church to love her. And the church just showered her with grace. And we all got to pray for this family. And when she got baptized and they moved back in together, we rejoiced. This family was saved. And they are quite the godly family to this day. And I, just, I always remember that breakfast where he had to decide between lawyering up and praying. And he chose to pray instead. And what a blessing it was. And I share that story. I know that that's not the way every story is going to end. But some of them can. And so if you're in that marriage right now where you just feel like there's no hope, please, please, please talk to somebody. Don't give up and talk to God about your marriage. It does not have to end. Well, from doing marriage God's way, Jesus turns and he talks about doing money God's way. He has this young man come to him. And the young man has a very interesting question. He comes asking Jesus about salvation in verses 16 to 30. And the young man thinks, because he has been successful in so many ways, that if he can just talk to this great rabbi, maybe he can find out that right investment, that right action, the right thing to do that will secure for him eternal life. He's been used to being able to figure things out. If I just invest my money properly, work hard, that has worked well. Maybe that's how salvation works too. Jesus is not going to advocate some kind of works-based salvation, but he, he asks the man a series of questions. You know, you know the, the law. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This man was not apparently at the Sermon on the Mount because he quickly says, well, I've kept all these. If he'd been in the Sermon on the Mount, he would know when Jesus says you shall not murder, he means have you harbored bitterness against someone in your heart? If you have, you've committed heart murder. When Jesus says you shall not commit adultery, he means have you looked at a woman with lust? If you have, you've committed heart adultery. If the man thought through the implications, he would not have answered arrogantly, all these have, I have kept. He would have said humbly, no, I fall short of the glory of God. And so what Jesus says is aimed at exposing the man's need for salvation when in verse 21 he says, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow 
me. You see, Jesus knew that this man of great possessions had an idol in his heart where ultimately he trusted in his money and himself to be able to make things right in his life. And so when Jesus says, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, he was exposing this idol that had taken such a hold in the young man's life. And about the saddest thing, just like that man in the recliner chair, was that this young man chose money instead of Jesus. I, I just, can you imagine Jesus walking or watching this young man walk away? Come so close to eternal life and then to want his money more than Jesus. The man made a really sad choice because he chose things that would end like money and possessions instead of what would last forever like salvation and eternal life. The man's choice was sad because he gave up on true joy, a right relationship with God to cling instead to fake joy. You know, those things that we can buy on Amazon. The man needed God to change his heart. And I would say when it comes to money, so do we. Here's the point. God lends us his resources to use for eternal purposes. Do you know that the lure to love money and build your life around what you possess is a strong lure? It's quite natural to worship money, to use money as a functional savior. But money makes a really lousy master. Can never quite give you what it promises. Here are some lies that abound about money. First is, it's my money. No, according to the Bible, God made all things and therefore owns all things, including the money you claim is yours. Here's another lie. Financial security is my best life. Nope, not really. Not in this case it wasn't. Did you hear Jesus saying how hard it was for a rich man to come into the kingdom of heaven? Because wealth can be a powerful blinder to our need for forgiveness. Haven't you known someone who is quite poor and yet happy? Or someone who is quite wealthy and quite unhappy? Here's another lie. Earthly wealth is a sign of God's favor. Not in this case. In fact, the disciples were shocked because they expected, well, clearly this must have been a good man. He's kept all these commands. He has so much wealth. Clearly God has blessed him. But be careful there. Money does not necessarily mean God has blessed you. There are some very wealthy, wicked people. And that money can become a barrier to coming to Jesus. No, the love of money is, is something that can be rooted in us quite deeply. And this is why it is impossible for man to come to God. All of us have something. There's, there's some barrier that, you know, even if somebody shares the gospel with you perfectly, it, it just clouds the way you hear it. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to unclog our ears and open up our hearts so that we will hear the gospel and be able to say, you're right, I do need Jesus. 
And, and if you've ever walked with somebody who's gotten to that point, it's, you just see something change. It's like you've been sharing the gospel with them on and off for years. They've been going to church off and on, and then one day it just clicks, and all of a sudden Jesus is the best news ever. And the idea that God would love them enough to die in their place on the cross and then rise from the dead, it's like, I get it. I need you, Jesus. What you've seen is the possibility that God has just done a miracle. That's what Jesus means when he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But now we got to get to this sticky question that Jesus posed, right? Jesus says to the man, go and sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And I promise, if you're an American, you're hoping that that's more of a metaphor, Right? Like, like Jesus, he, he must have been just saying, well, you, you need to, you know, trust God with your life. He doesn't actually mean that we're supposed to sell what we own, give it away, does he? That's exactly what he means. Wait, 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 Pastor, are you saying that I've got to give away everything I own in order to be a Christian? No, I'm not saying that. But if that's your first response to this passage, I may be saying that. Here's what I mean. Jesus is trying to give this man a dual gift. He's trying to give him eternal life, and he's trying to bless him with a gift called generous giving. You see, this man in his heart is so tightly held by a love for money that he cannot trust God and he can't really love his neighbor. If he really loved his neighbor, then the idea of giving to the poor would not be something that kept him from Jesus. He would see the incredible gift that this is. Now, what do I mean? Christian, if you're sitting in this room in the United States of America, you have been trusted by God with more wealth than about 99% of the people on planet earth. I said trusted because remember, it's not my wealth, it's not your wealth, it's his wealth. And why does he trust us with that? You know, it's not so that we can live in perfect financial security, albeit there's wisdom and ways to invest wisely and things like that. No, he trusts you with his wealth to use for his purposes. And the, the secret that he reveals here is that when we trust God enough to use the wealth for his purposes, it's so much fun. If you will step out in faith and trust God with the money he trusts to you, I promise you're not going to regret it. One way that he gives us to do this is an Old Testament example of something called tithing. What is tithing? It's just an old word for a tenth, giving 10% back to God. You say, well, well, do I have to give 10%? Well, be careful, because if you start going down that road, God might come to you like he did this rich young man and say, why don't we make it 100%, okay? So be careful there. Why not trust God with giving the 10% and we'll go from there? And what I'm arguing is that if you will begin the practice of faithfully giving back to God 10%, Give back to God what's his. You're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to discover what a joy it is for money not to have that 
claim on your heart. When you can give money away with a smile on your face, it doesn't control you. When you cannot give it away to your local church, that money controls you. If what I'm saying right now makes you so mad you don't want to come back, money probably has too high to tight a hold on your heart. I get it. I get it, right? Uh, you've worked hard. But who gave you the limbs to work hard? Those are God's limbs you're using to work hard. I get it. Pastor, I don't make a lot of money. Praise God. That's why there's no, you know, everybody has to give $100 a week. There's none of that. It's 10% is what the Bible gives as a pattern for faithful giving. What I want to convince you of this morning is that if you'll trust God, you'll have a lot of joy in giving generously. Redemption Church tries to model this, and I'll tell you how. Every dollar that comes in, we immediately give 12 cents away. 12% of everything that comes to Redemption Church is given away. Let me tell you how. Of that 12%, so 1% of everything that comes in the doors goes to planting churches in North America. A half a percent goes to helping the homeless through City Rescue Mission here in Jacksonville. Five uh, percent goes to helping Baptist seminaries and churches and pastors through cooperative program giving. 0.5% goes to helping orphans and foster children through Florida Baptist Children's Home. 0.5% is going to a specific church plant right now that is just getting started in Daytona Beach, Florida. 0.5% is going to an orphanage in Haiti. 0.5% of everything that comes in is going to an organization called Her Song to help end human trafficking. 0.5% is going specifically right here in North Florida to help churches. Used to be called JBA, now it's North Florida Churches. 1% of everything that comes in is going to that Lottie Moon offering that is to help missionaries take the gospel around the world. 1% is going to, Florida, uh, to churches across Florida in the McGuire State offering. 0.5% is going to help feed this community by supporting Feeding Northeast Florida. 0.5% is going to helping those in a crisis pregnancy by blessing the Nest Crisis Pregnancy Center. It, when you give to Redemption Church, you're getting to invest in like a kingdom mutual fund. I mean, you just get to kind of cover all the bases. And if you decide you want to give above and beyond that, I would highly recommend any of these partnerships. We've talked about marriage God's way and money God's way. And I've tried to argue that doing marriage God's way and doing money God's way is worth it. But you may not be convinced. His disciples wanted to know the, that as well. Jesus, is it worth it? What about us? If we do give up possessions, if we do forego family, what about us, Jesus? And Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Now, I'm not promising you give the church 10% and he'll bless you with a Ferrari. Nope, 
I can't promise that. Uh, I'm promising something better than a Ferrari. I'm saying that when we trust God so much that it affects our wallet and our families, not only will we have joy now, but we have this hope that one day we will live and work and be part of the new heavens and new earth. Guys, you just can't imagine. You can't imagine how good this is going to be. You, you, you think, you know, Elon Musk has a lot of money? Wait until there's so much gold it's used to pave the streets. You, you think that Bill Gates has got it good? Wait until he looks like the poorest person because Almighty God recreates this world to where there is no more crying, no more tears, to where we all love one another, to where we are a part of the greatest society ever and it will last forever. I'm calling you to trust Jesus in light of the coming day when he returns. Trust him with the gender he has assigned to you from birth. Trust him with guiding you to the right person you are to marry. Trust him with your single life, maximizing the time for kingdom purposes. Trust him with your marriage, faithfully working for a godly marriage rather than giving up in divorce. Trust Jesus with your children, raising them to know God and to love Jesus. And trust Jesus with your money, knowing it already belongs to God. Show your trust by faithfully tithing at Redemption Church. I'm going to pray, and we're going to close out this service, and then I'm going to give you just an opportunity to respond as the collection plates are passed. If you're a guest with us today, I want to thank you for being with us, and I don't want you to feel pressured to give money. What I would like for you to do if you're a guest with us is fill out one of those connection cards and just let us know how we can pray for you and how we can love you. If you're a member, thank you for faithfully giving. It allows us to continue to proclaim Jesus in this community. If you're not a Christian, I want to give you this opportunity to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. And then I want you to either to write on a card or come find me after the service and tell me what God's up to in your life. You say, how do I become a Christian? It's not by doing a bunch of things to make God happy with you. Becoming a Christian looks like receiving the gift that Jesus gave. He came, he lived the perfect life you and I never could. He died in our place for our sins on the cross. And then he rose from the grave. Becoming a Christian looks like turning from your sin and repentance and turning to Jesus in faith. It has to be Jesus alone and it has to be real. And then you receive eternal life. Hey, let's pray. God, right now, I want to pray first for the Christians in this room. There's none of us that can get out of Matthew 19 without needing your help. Whether it's struggles with our gender, struggles with marriage or sex, struggles with children or singleness or divorce or money, I know I need you, Jesus. So first, I just ask for your grace. Would you help us? Would you change us? Would you do that beautiful kindness to both convict us and then carry us through to change? Grant us your favor in repenting. God, show us the joy. Convince us of the joy of doing both marriage and money your way. 
I pray for the families of Redemption Church. Oh, how we need you, Jesus. You know the marriages that are on the rocks right now. Bless them, please, Jesus. You know the children that are just hurting right now. Would you guide them to someone who will love them and tell them about you? God, you know the marriages and families and, and, and children hurting in this community. Would you make this a kingdom outpost where we can come alongside to be a blessing with your gospel to the families of this community? Give us a heart, your heart, Jesus, for children. God, for the person here right now who has never trusted you, would you touch them in such a way that they know you are real? Hey, if you want to trust Jesus, talk to him with something like this. Tell him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've done what you tell me not to do, and I've not done what you tell me to do. Please, Jesus, forgive me. Pray something like that to him right now. If you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you need to tell him. Say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave on the third day. And that if you really want Jesus as your Lord and Savior, commit your life to him. Say, Jesus, I want you as the Lord of my life. I will follow you. With every head.